the better the fermentation we can have in that rumen, the better it is to increase the microbial population. That's what we call it. And that those microbes, they're actually the source of feed, a big, big, the majority source of feed for the dairy cow as they go from the rumen through the abomasum and down to the intestines. A whole new era of communication in the feed mill industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global feed mill industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a feed mill, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutrition program innovation. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global feed mill industry. Hello, welcome to the Feed Science Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Hollenbeck. And today we have Andre Pereira. I apologize if I've spelt, pronounced that wrong again, but uh, welcome, Andre. If you would, um, you know, share some of your background, history, uh, anything you'd like to share for the uh, share with the audience, and then uh, just provide a you know a brief overview of what uh, topics you would like to, to discuss today. Hello, Ron. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for, for having me here. It's an honor to be in this podcast. Uh, so my name, like you said, is Andre Pereira. Uh, I work as a nutrition and management consultant with GPS Dairy Consulting. Uh, it's a group of independents in the upper Midwest region. And we our focus is dairy farms. And yeah, and that's what we do. Um, a little bit of my background, I am originally from Brazil. I'm a veterinarian originally. Uh, after I got my degree and practice medicine for a, for a couple of years, I decided to come to the United States for graduate school. So I did a master's and a PhD here in the U.S., uh, Louisiana State Univers- University of New Hampshire, uh, respectfully. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, and have been here for several years now doing uh, nutrition work. Uh, I've worked for a feed company for uh, since 2016. I worked for a feed company as as a technical specialist in the region, and and my region is uh, Minnesota, Dakotas, and Iowa. That's where I'm actually at. And then after. Uh, between working the feed company, I spent a little bit of time as uh, in a vendor, so working for a supplier of amino acids, and then I came back to that company to work more in the field and feed cows and, and working with feeding cows and doing nutrition. So, and now I decided to go independent and had this great opportunity with with the GPS team, and uh, it's been great so far. Eastman serves veterinarians and nutritionists in agrochemical and animal health industries by helping them select, evaluate, and implement innovative nutritional programs. Eastman works with your team to customize your gut health approach in feed and water. Eastman's approach addresses nutritional and bacterial challenges and finds new ingredient preservation and hygiene solutions. Explore ways to accelerate and innovate your programs. Contact the animal nutrition team at eastman.com. Good. So, um, 
as we talked before the the podcast started, yeah. uh, would you share with the audience just kind of a, an overview of some of the topics uh, we'd like to to discuss today, and then we'll uh, we'll we'll get into it. Sure. Uh, so what I was thinking is I wanted to discuss about. Uh, you know, the other side of the feed industry, right? The side of us nutritionists on farm trying to, trying to talk to, uh, to the farmer, but also talk to the mill and be that in between term to make sure everything is going correctly, the, to make sure that we can all be successful together and, you know, have a conversation between all of us. Uh, so that's, that's where. That's what I wanted to talk about. So there, uh, and I just want to share some experiences that I've had, and maybe I can, uh, if I can help one person out there that's listening to the podcast to to make improvements to their farm, that would be. Or if I can help a mill to to make improvements or think about something differently, that would be ideal. That's what I wanted to share. So uh, we can talk about some experiences that I've had. I've had some experiences with. Uh, some uh, corn processing conversations, some uh, amino acid conversations that we use for ruminants as well, and some difficulties that we've had adding some products to to the farm. So we can we can go with that. Sure. Well, uh, you know, my experience would certainly be coming from the feed mill side, and um, you know, trying to uh, to meet your needs as well as the other customers uh, that can uh, that can get can get challenging and, and and particle size and corn processing is one area that is always difficult because uh, you'll have customers that are wanting different particle sizes for very good reasons uh, but most cases the feed mill has one grinding system so they they have to make an attempt to make uh, the different particle sizes for the different customers, uh, but also make sure they have enough ground corn to uh, to meet the production demands for the day. So that that is a a, a difficult topic, whether it's dairy feed, swine feed, um, just meeting the. Uh, the, the the particle size uh, uh, desire, I guess, from from the customer. So I'd be very interested in in your your thoughts and experiences on on that and how you have dealt with uh, with different uh, toll mills to uh, to get the the grind size you you want. Yeah, so uh, it, it's very interesting. So part, uh, particle sizing for dairy cows is uh, very touchy subject there is there's a there's some research that was done on what's the appropriate size for cows but there are a lot of a lot of uh, what ifs and what about this discussions on that too um, the research pretty much shows that particle size between 400 and 600 microns will be the ideal size for dairy cows right and if you get an average between that, that 400 and 600, you're gonna have you can have a good digestibility. Of course, that depends on the corn type as well and what kind of corn we're feeding. But we're not gonna get into that for now. But mostly on the size itself. So between 400 and 600 is ideal. But one of the things I like to 
also do and ask for the mills as well is to look at the variability. So how much is actually between 400 and 600? That can be your average. But I want to know as, as well how much is outside of that average of those parameters. So let's say if you have uh, 40, 50% of your corn is around 450 microns, but you also have uh, a good percentage, let's say 15, 15 to 20% of that corn that's above 800 microns, that can be detrimental for the dairy cow. Uh, not detrimental for the animal itself, but detrimental for production, for the highest production we can. Basically, because what we're, we're trying to do as nutritionists for dairy cow is you try to increase the fermentation that's happening in the rumen as fast as, as, fast as we can, as good as we can. Uh, we want to push that fermentation because the microbes in the rumen, they will utilize that energy to produce uh, more protein or basically they're just reproducing they're just increasing the amount of the amount of themselves of the, these microbes right and the better or the, the the better the fermentation we can have in that rumen the better it is to increase the microbial population that's what we call it and that those microbes they're actually the source of feed a big, big, the majority source of feed for the dairy cow as they go from the rumen through the abomasum and down to the intestines, they will be digested and absorbed by the cow and they're the biggest uh, source of nutrients. And we just want to make sure that that is uh, maximized. We want to make sure that we have the maximum amount of microbes that we can coming out of the, the rumen because that's uh, the cheapest way to feed cows, but also the most efficient way to feed cows. Uh, most importantly, the most efficient way to do it. So if the corn is above 800, 1,000 microns, for example, uh, the digestibility is just not there because there's not enough air, surface area in that corn for the microbes to get in and actually degrade it. Uh, there are some aids that can be used out there, for example, some, some amylases, some enzymes, or some yeasts that may increase digestibility just because they, they help with breaking down this, this particle. But to be honest, uh, my experience with enzymes, for example, if you have a substrate that microbes cannot access because it's just too, you don't have enough area, for example, in a large micron corn, uh, the enzymes also won't have that area to work with. So you, 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 can't, you can't fix, you can't just add, put an additive to the dry diet trying to fix a problem that comes all the way back from that grinding side, right? So that's why I like to look at this, the, the, the variation of corn, basically because I want to make sure the rumen is fermenting as as, as quickly and as efficiently as it can. And if we have too much grind, uh, large particle size, that, that won't work. Uh, I'll give you an example. I work with, uh, I had a client, um, I won't tell who, who that is, but it's a farm that had some really rough corn and high micron size corn, their average was 800 microns. And we had a good percentage on the 12, on the 1.2, 1,200 micron size. And the cows just were not, you, you could tell they were 
lacking energy. They were lacking that energy that you know, on paper in my feed software, it looked great. Uh, but when you added the digestibility and decreased the digestibility because of these higher micron sizes, the cows just would not produce as, as much milk, right? So we, we talked to their feed mill, their, their current uh, supplier of corn, and they had, a, they had a hard time. Like you said, they couldn't – what they told us is that they just could not get the grind that we wanted for those cows. So uh, we, we had a conversation with the farm saying, should we, um, should we start grinding, grinding it on farm now? instead to make our own grind, have our own screens and make sure we're doing a good job or should we find a different corn supplier in the region that could supply us the corn that we want. And that's where, that's where we were at that, at, with that client. It's, it, it wasn't a thing, an easy thing. And maybe you know better than me why, uh, why is it so hard to get a different grind or a different screen in the mills. So do you, do you ask your feed mills to provide you with uh, particle size data that includes uh, the distribution uh, of that particle size? Or do you just, uh, do, do you formulate and just work off of what they tell you is their average particle size? I usually ask them for the distribution, yes. And there are laboratories in the region, at least in our upper Midwest region here, that we can send it in and ask for the average and distribution of the of the particles. Uh, to be honest, I usually do it myself. I just go and grab uh, grab the samples, the corn sample on farm, and send it in to get the average and distribution. And then with that number, I can come back to the mill and we can have a conversation and see if there is a possibility to make improvements or, or maybe it's, it's actually looking good. Just curious of the, the feed mills that you work with, um, how many of them have, uh, you know, the 13 screen Rotap particle size machine or an NIR uh, on, on site for particle size testing. Uh, I mean, coming from, you know, the feed milling side and an understanding for whether it's a dairy animal or a pig or a chicken, how, how important and critical particle size is to animal performance. I, I've just always required that, you know, that, that equipment is available on site at the feed mill and that the feed mill tests that particle size multiple times a day to ensure it's it, it's within tolerance. I'm just just curious with your experiences, is that something that's uh, you know, not common, I guess, and you have to send it to an outside lab? Or, or even if they do provide the data, do you still want to send it to an outside lab just to get uh, another party's view? Just, just curious, because it, it seems like uh, uh, certainly people – there, there's different uh, views, I guess, of, of how to um, how, how to monitor particle size. 
That's that's an interesting point. So with dairy mills, uh, most most of the large dairy mills, dairy feed mills that I work with, they do have some good quality control and they keep track of what they their particle sizing is. I I'm not sure if they do it multiple times a day. To be honest, I've and I've I've never worked in a mill, right? I to to know how that is done there, but I do know that they provide us some quality. Uh, some quality reports and they do some quality checks as well. Um, but sometimes thing, things just get, I'd say things need, need to be updated, right? Or maybe need to be uh, adjusted. And if I get to a farm, which I have before, I would get to a farm and see that the corn do- just doesn't look like it did before. And I know, I know we're just going by looks here, but it, you know, with, with enough experience, you can walk a farm and see what, look at the corn and be like, yeah, that doesn't look like it's right. But sure. I, you, you match that with looking also at, at the cow side, right? We go and walk cows and look at their manure. And all of a sudden compared to last month, now I see a lot more corn in the manure that's being released and they're not utilizing. And, uh, one of the equipments, we we nutritionists have is we can just screen it too so we just walk around with a with a screen um we you know we we don't don't take it from your kitchen don't bring it back to your kitchen just keep that screen just just for manure and write down this is for manure but we walked around we walk around with a with a little uh screen that we just put the manure there wash it out and as you wash it out and just clean it you can see what type of particles are left over in that screen and if there is more corn then then you have your answer the corn just already doesn't look right we haven't made m- much of a change in the diet and now they're excreting more manure so in that case um, as i'm an independent nutritionist i work for the farmer and i will look i will look after them right i will collect a sample and send that in myself uh, and of course, there are several ways to collect a sample, but I, I just use uh, I just use the recommendations from the University of Wisconsin. Uh, they have a they have a nice sheet there on how to collect a sample for grains, for forages, for etc. So I just use I try to do my best to collect a good sample, good representative sample, and send that in. And then I have my numbers. Then I contact the feed mill and say, "This is what I got. What do you have for your numbers from the tests you're doing?" And most of the time that will match, sometimes it just won't match. So uh, in one instance, uh, a few years ago, actually, uh, it didn't match. And we talked to the mill and they actually told me, yeah, we, we're actually currently working on upgrading our, our, our roller mill because it's, it's our hammer mill, sorry, upgrading their hammer mill because the, the hammer mill is older now and it's not doing as good of a job as it was before. So we're upgrading it now to to a new one. And after they did, the next load that came in, after they did the upgrades or adjustments that they needed to do, the last load was beautiful, to be honest. And no more excess corn excreted in the manure, and the cows looked great after that. Their milk production went uh, up a little bit and stabilized where I wanted, where I, I thought it would be. So that's that's how I deal with with that. I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> and, and my comment earlier on te- 
testing particle size multiple times a day. I probably should clarify that. That uh, if you're grinding with roller mills, my opinion is you need to check it um, at least twice a shift in a feed mill because uh, you know if your screener's not working properly, some cobs or something go through the roller mill, it uh, uh, it may not come back to the the settings that it was before, and you end up uh, grinding coarser corn than than you think you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a hammer mill, it's it, it's much simpler uh, as long as the screens aren't um, uh, the screens are intact and your hammers are in decent shape. I mean, it, it'll it'll provide a, a pretty consistent grind. Which brings me to my next question: What do you, uh, from a nutritionist standpoint, do you prefer rolled corn or corn uh, ground through a hammer mill uh, for for dairy feeds? That's a good question because <laughs> that's a tough one. Uh, you know, from experience, and actually just feeding two cows, I feel like I get more consistency with hammer mills mm-hmm. and how and how that's done. I do I do remember talking to some mills about that and they, they say yeah if when you want more consistency it takes longer, it takes more work to get that done with a hammer mill. I'm not sure why that would be, but yes, there is I think there's more consistency with hammer compared to roller for corn itself. Yeah, I would probably argue with what, yeah. the, with what the mill told you. I mean, hammer mills are easier. I mean, you get the right size screen in, they just grind. Um, but I think the problem is the, the, the size of the screen. Sure. I want a finer screen and maybe that's that lags. Yeah, and I... I mean, typically, you start getting into finer grinds. It's not not so much, but uh, historically, a roller mill you should be able to get a uh, a lower standard deviation on your grind versus a hammer mill. And you know, certainly, corn moisture and everything else plays a part in this because if you're running, you know, a dryer, uh, say ten or twelve. Uh, say 12% corn, which isn't unusual. You get into the fall of the year before new crop comes in, it's dry. And you put it in the hammer mill, it just shatters. So you get um, you get more deviation in the particle size. It, some of it just shatters into flour and some come into bigger chunks where a roller mill uh, typically will will have a a lower uh, standard deviation, but um, I mean, from a from a manufacturing standpoint, and just a an uh, ease of of maintaining a particle size, I personally would prefer a hammer mill. But mm-hmm. uh, hammer mills use more energy. There's there's certainly some drawbacks to them. But um, so yeah, I was just curious if. Um, I really thought your answer might be, well, if they would both provide the same particle size, I don't care, which (laughs) is how I would look at it. But I certainly understand uh, hammer mills being more consistent. Uh, There's less uh, human intervention, so to speak, that uh, that can can add additional variation into the grind. 
There, there are uh, you you know that better than I do. There are some adjustments to the roller side and roller mill that they need to be looked at frequently, right? Yes. Yeah, it's. I mean, it, they're really touchy. Uh, if you if you're running clean corn through, and what I mean by clean corn is the cobs and the shucks and everything are are removed, so it's it's just uh, whole kernel corn. Um, you know, roller mills do a, a pretty good job of a consistent grind from that standpoint. But I've been in a lot of feed mills uh, who are toll milling feed for for customers who, and they don't have a, a power scalper uh, ahead of the roller mill. So they'll get those cobs. Uh, and a lot of co-ops will pile corn on the ground and, and cover it. Uh, well, when they go to pick it up, depending upon the base uh, that um, that corn is piled on, when they get down to the bottom, you can get rocks or chunks of, oh. if it's got a limestone base, chunks of limestone that come through that without that power scalper, it ends up in your roller mill, which can just, it causes, uh, well, dulling of the rolls as well as, um, not being able to, uh, you know, the, the roll gap, if it rolls through, the roll gap opens up and it ends up maybe the rolls are not in parallel anymore where it's grinding fine on one end and coarser on the other side. Um, so it just, it adds to the variation you were talking about. Uh, and the bigger the roller mill, uh, you know, the, the greater opportunity, I guess, there is for, um, you know, when the rolls are not in parallel, say, making flour on one end of the roll and, and coarse ground corn on the other. So, hmm. uh, yeah, I guess we don't need to get into a, a roller no. mill dissertation here, but uh, they, they both grind, grind corn or grains very well. It's uh, one just takes a little more uh, maintenance or uh, attention, I guess, to, to ensure that the correct particle size is, is going into the feed. I think that's very interesting. And I wonder if there's, uh, if volume plays a role into that, since some of these uh, mills have to put a lot of corn out volume wise in a day, if, if there, there's a relationship there that could make them say, I'll go with this, technology instead of the other just because I need the volume out well and yeah I, I don't don't want to admit this but I've I've had to do it before uh, you have multiple customers who all want a different particle size but realistically the, the mill either one doesn't have enough bins to to keep different particle sizes or two, they just they're from a capacity standpoint, they're 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 constantly pushing the grinders to keep enough corn to make the feed demand that they have for that given day. So, say you want uh, say a 450 micron, uh, another customer wants 500, and another one wants 600. Um, the reality is and I'm certainly not saying this is right, but I have had to do it. You look at the 
the feed that you have to make for the day and knowing that grinder can't shut down or I won't have enough ground corn to make all of the feed for today. Um, you know, let's say the, the guy that uh, the customer who wanted 500 micron is the majority of the feed for the day. Yeah. You set the, the roller mill or the, the hammer mill at a 500 micron and pretty much everybody gets that for the day. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it, it's not it's not a fun situation, and certainly the feed mill is not doing it because they're they're they don't want to to provide you what what you're asking for. They just simply the constraints on the feed mill they can't do it. So you you kind of whoever the, the the biggest demand for the day is what they want uh, is kind of what everybody gets, which to some extent. Nobody's happy with it, but it's you, you got to pick. You, you got to pick a lane and and go. And it's not. It's again, it's not that the feed mill doesn't want to give you what you want. They just don't have the capacity, the grinding capacity to meet everybody's needs. And and it's understandable. I mean, and I, I would not expect, to be honest, I would not expect a mill to just make a change just because I have a, a small volume coming out of it. If they have a big volume coming out in a different way, I wouldn't expect that. So I would. I mean, honestly, you're, and, and that's what yeah. I've always struggled with, with toll milling feed when, I mean, it's no different than any other business. You, you need to, keep your your feed mill near capacity for it to uh, to be the most efficient and honestly generate the most income. Um, but the flip side of it, I look at you're buying feed from me at and you want a 400 or a 450 micron. And I know I'm not doing it. Hmm. I mean, that it, it's always bothered me. But the reality is uh you can't yep. do what everybody everybody wants, and and I'm not saying that for every mill because there are mills out there who have adequate grinding capacity where they can do that for uh, for different customers. But there are an awful lot of them that just simply can't and need to you know be honest with the customers and just I I. I I simply can't do it. Here's what I can do. Is is that acceptable? Um, to me, that's much better than um, you know you you thinking you're going to get 450 micron, but I'm consistently giving you 550. I mean that throws your formulation off. Yeah. You're formulating for a 450. You're not getting the the energy you're you're formulating for. So it's it's not an easy conversation, but it's it's best for everybody to just be honest and tell you, I can't do that. Here's what I can do and hope you don't take your business somewhere else, but understand you certainly could. Um, yeah. And, and I, for example, I would uh, I would do that if I uh, if it reaches a point where it's just not working, I will go to my to the farm, to my client and say, we need to start talking about a, a different mill because mm -hmm. uh, they're not delivering what we're supposed to be paying for. And yeah, 
Yeah, it's yeah. Particle size is yeah. That we could do a, a podcast solely on particle size. I think as important as it is to to animal performance, and it's it's an area that you know within a lot of feed mills. Uh, you know, and, and I'll say certainly you know, older feed mills, they were, if you just look at how feed has changed over the years, particle size has continued to get finer and finer as time's gone on. And, um, you know, some mills just haven't put the, the capital investment in to, to, to keep the, the grinding capacity up um, high enough that, that they can meet the different particle size demands. It's, um, it's no different than any other in any other industry, but yep. um, it just it's you, you could lose some business looking at it from a toll mill perspective, but it's I think it's better for everybody to just be honest and say I can't meet what you want, but here's what I can do, and if and if you agree to that, then then the mill needs to needs to consistently provide that. You know, if it's 550 or whatever the 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 agreed upon uh, compromise is, um, then then at least you're formulating for it. Uh, your cost of formulation may go up a little bit to to, mm-hmm. to compensate for it, but at least at least the animal's getting what it needs for for optimal performance. Yeah, or at least we know what the animal is getting. Right, and you know what that performance impact should be okay well i think we've uh uh, kicked around corn processing about as much as uh as much as we need to so you had mentioned earlier um about amino acid uh application and and how you'd like to see that done in in a feed mill yeah so uh amino acids is something i've I've had a lot of experience with i did my all my graduate school with amino acids uh six years working with them uh, but the application in feed, feed mill, uh, I only learned about it after I started working in the in the field and working with farms and looking at at what's happening with mixes and and the use of amino acids, right? Because uh, I always expect that if I'm adding amino acids to dairy cows and we're doing what we call amino acid balancing, which in the poultry and swine industry have been going on for years, for decades. But in with dairy cows, it started in the 70s, but it's slowly taking, uh, it's slowly taking uh, in the last few years, actually, it's been taking a lot. And basically, we would add amino acid to, to the, to a farm mix, but not see the results we were expecting. And that's, uh, Sometimes it could be just the formulation is not done correctly, but most of the time there's something going on. It could be just at the mill side that is not helping us with our formulation. So uh, amino acids for ruminants, I'm not sure if many, uh, most people know that, but some that, for some that don't, amino acids for ruminants, they have to be encapsulated. Uh, and the reason why is because as they go through the rumen, uh, if they're not encapsulated, the microbes will just utilize them as a source of energy and protein and make their own uh, protein, right? So we have to encapsulate and protect that from the rumen so we can precisely deliver that amino acid to the small intestine 
to the amount we want. There are two types of encapsulation out in the market. Uh, sorry, there are three types of encapsulation out in the market today. One is fat encapsulation. That's the most common one. They uh, it's just they just use stearic acid to encapsulate uh, amino acids around it, and it gets to the small intestine. And then the stearic acid is hopefully released by the pancreatic juices, and the amino acids absorb. The other one is a uh, it's a synthetic coating. It's a it's a it's called polyvinylstyrene coating. Um, and there are two companies currently using that type of coating right now. And it's a, it's a acid base, uh, coating, which means that it's coated into the rumen. The rumen pH is, is just slightly acidic. It's around six and a half, 6.8 pH. So it's protected through that. But as soon as it hits the abomason and the higher acidity abomason below four pH, then the coating breaks down and the amino acids are released and go right through the intestine and absorbed. That's another uh, type of technology. To be honest, that's that's the one that currently has shown the most, the higher effectivity uh, according to the literature, to the journal uh, papers that we've seen. And then there is another technology uh, also very, very, uh, very good, which is just a liquid form of the amino acid, so uh, you you add it, uh, it, it, you you make a, a, an analog of the of the amino acid. In this case, methionine. You make an analog that works and does the same thing as the just methionine, and that analog can actually get absorbed through the rumen uh, right to the right to the bloodstream. And be utilized like that, and that analog addition of that is is uh, works really well as well. It's usually on a liquid form. They have it also in a dry form as well. Uh, but this analog also works. So there are three types of protections, right? But the thing about these is for the two, the, the encapsulated ones, the ones that are encapsulated with fat and with the, the synthetic material, is they're fragile or they can be fragile. So let's say you put them in the in the mix as one of the first ingredients and it's going to get beaten with uh with calcium carbonate, with phosphates, with magnesium oxide, with several other uh minerals in that. So as it gets beaten, uh it will it won't be as uh it won't have the efficacy. Uh because it, the 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 capsules will just break. And then they're going to be break, broken up and get into the rumen and be utilized by the microbes instead of actually going through the rumen to the small intestine and being utilized there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very rare to see that. Uh, most mills, they, they receive uh, uh, something that says how, how to do, how basically uh, how to mix our products in your mill. This is it's like a little manual. And usually for amino acids, it says it's it needs to be the last thing in the mixer in the batch, so it it's not beaten up and and and, and you know it, it doesn't break down. And most mills do it, but sometimes we do find mills that that just they just forget to put it as the last ingredient, and that that's what I recommend is put it put the amino acids as your last thing in that mix before the final batch before the final mix to. Uh, 
to send it out, right? So it's just that they're fragile and it, and they're very expensive too. They're, those are one of the most expensive ingredients in a diet being synthetic. Uh, on the liquid side, on if you're adding the liquid one, the thing about the liquid is that it's very acidic. Uh, the pH is very low. So if you mix a high quantity of this liquid amino acid with a very uh, basic, which means high pH, mix, so it has some potassium carbonate, for example, calcium carbonate, sodium bicarb, sodium ascarb. If you mix those together, they, they, there's a high probability that they can react and the efficacy of the, the liquid will be lowered uh, to, a, to a certain point just because of the reaction that they do. And also uh, handling mostly in the cold weather, like right now, we're not having that cold of a winter, but still... We know it's coming. Uh, when when you mix those together and there's a cold factor that is added to that, it just bricks everything and things will just not flow through the meal, uh, through the augers and, and everywhere. And that's the that's the phone call I hate getting from a meal is, is the phone call that says, uh, look, we've... Uh, uh, everything's just bricked. We're going to clean up and things are not flowing. And what do we do? And that's the worst call we get. So that's, those are the things about amino acids that are very, very important for uh, dairy cow feeds that are, I don't, I don't know how important they would be for poultry and swine since you can add the straight amino acids to those animals and there's a bigger feeding rate for, for them compared to, to dairy cows. But it's those are very important strategies in my point of view. Is You had mentioned liquid methionine. Um, and as I stated before, I'm, I don't know a lot about dairy yeah. cow. So, uh, but is that the same liquid methionine that is used in swine and poultry diets? Or is it a... Is there a a different liquid methionine that's uh, best used in cattle feeds? We use both. So we do okay. use the same that's used for poultry and swine. Uh, it's a, it's a, a methyl analog. Uh, basically, that analog doesn't have nitrogen in, in, in the molecule. Uh, that one, it's called HMTBA. That's how we call it. Uh, that's a generic name for it. It's used in both poultry, swine, and uh, dairy feeds as well. But for dairy feeds, that's actually for uh, increasing butter fat. I'm not going to go into the specifics on why that can increase butter fat. That's a discussion for another hour of, of <laughs> conversation. But uh, it, does, it, it has pretty strong uh, effects on butter fat. There's another liquid that we use that is actually for uh, milk protein. It's made for milk protein. It has a little bit of effect on milk fat too, just because it works similarly in the rumen. But it's mostly for milk protein. It's a different type of analog that I don't think is used in poultry and swine. That's that's just for dairy cattle. So, yeah, there are two types. Okay. So Okay, good to know. Um, you you mentioned the, the the call from the feed mill where you know nothing is flowing. Uh, is that <laughs> it, 
is that due to a combination of, uh, you know, liquid methionine or liquid amino acids and fat, or what's, you know, what what what's driving driving that? I certainly understand the uh, the, the comment about the colder weather and how that impacts. I know back several years ago when there were very high inclusions of fat going into swine diets. Uh, wintertime certainly posed a challenge for for those higher inclusions. But just curious on the dairy feed, is it is it more fat related or is it the uh, you know the interaction of the more acidic uh, you know amino acids or methionine going into the feed that's causing that? It's a combination. Um, the fat, the fat is a big uh, factor on mostly in the winter on uh, decreasing flow and 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 having a problem with the flowability of this feed. Uh, so it's it's interesting because the dairy industry switched not too long ago. It's been going on for a few years now. It started switching more from feeding the 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 fats from products on farms such as fat, uh, roasted soy. Uh, cotton seeds, whole cotton seeds, right? And that would bring some of that fat in to actually adding straight fats into the mix. And it's basically because uh, the, the industry has switched to a fatty acid balancing idea where you want to make sure you're balancing the correct number of fatty acid and make sure you're getting the best bang for the buck, right? You never know how much of that cotton seed oil you're actually going to absorb some of it goes in the manure as a cottonseed just goes uh, intact through the animal, right? So it's more of a, okay, how, how precise can we get that? So everybody started adding a lot of fat to diets, and that's what caused that. So uh, we'll get calls from mills saying you, you can't add more than, I don't know, I'll make up a number here because every meal is different, but they'll say you can't add more than 200 pounds per ton of fat in this diet or it's not going to flow. Or they'll say, uh, I don't want to see more than 150 pounds per ton of fat in this or things will not go well because of our of the type of equipment we have. So we get those calls and we, 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 we can play around that. We, we try to uh, sometimes we can just get the fat and feed the fat uh, on farm, mm -hmm. uh, you know, have, have it being mixed on farm. That will help a lot. Actually, to be honest, and we we can do that as well. Sure, good. Well, I think we're reaching the point of, of wrapping up this podcast. Is there any final um, comments or anything you want to want to share before we uh, move into the uh, to the, the the three questions we like to to end each of these podcasts with? Sure. Uh, I think the final comment is just that you know we're. We're all in this together, feed mills, nutritionists, and farmers. We're all in this to just make sure we're doing a good job for the for our industry, right? Mm -hmm. And conversation, to have open communication and conversation, I think is the most important part of to make sure everybody's happy with what they're getting. Very true. It's time for our famous three. Ivonic Animal Nutrition is committed to ensure food security and safety while reducing the ecological footprint of animal farming. 
Its products and services use evidence-based solutions that seek to promote animal welfare and reduce reliance on natural resources. All this is underpinned by long-standing industry partnerships and deep customer understanding. Ivonics focus on efficiency, sustainable, healthy nutrition, and collaborations with livestock farming partners creates value for customers and consumers. Okay, well, let's uh, move into yep. the, the, the final uh, three questions we like to end these podcasts with. So what is kind of your favorite uh, go-to resource uh, as it uh, relates to, uh, you know, feed science or, you know, uh, feeding dairy cattle? Sure. Uh, well, first, I'd say podcasts are very important because we are we live on the road. We're traveling all the time. And I, I, I put 40 to 50,000 miles on my car a year and can't be reading while doing that. So it's better to be listening. So I, I like to listen to podcasts grab some ideas and make me take a note and make sure I go back to the office and and dig into that idea that the podcast gave me, right? Uh, I do like to use a few uh, article, few journals, a few papers out there. Hordes Dairyman is a very good uh, resource. Progressive Dairyman, those are two really good uh, uh, new sources of information. And I do, uh, I do read still a lot of uh, scientific articles. Journal Dairy Science is my is my go to for scientific articles. Okay, good. What would be uh, you know your favorite uh, you know resource uh, outside of, of of agriculture or outside of, of dairy cattle that has uh, you know brought value, I guess, to uh, to your career? Well, so uh, one of the resources I'd say is my team. Uh, the team of independence at GPS, it's, uh, we have a lot of communication. We communicate a lot with each other every day. I think that's one of the, one of the biggest resources we have is to actually have a team that can help you and that has experience with other things. Uh, lately, or lately I read this book here. I can share a book. Uh, it's called, uh, uh, there's nothing inappropriate about it, but it's called Getting Naked. Uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a business book actually. Uh, very interesting by Patrick Lencioni. Uh, so I've just read it, probably read it a couple of times already, but it's basically a book showing you how, uh, how you should consult. You should not, if you're asking for a business, you should not just be asking for business and asking for the sales. You should actually do the consulting and make sure you're, you're giving them, you're giving your clients the resources necessary to be successful uh, even before you make that sale, just to make sure that they they understand that you can be a good resource. So it's a, it's a pretty quick read and highly recommend that. My, my team recommended this to me. Good. Good. Uh, final question. Uh, in your opinion, what uh, separates people who are successful versus less successful uh, you know, in, uh, well, in agriculture, life, uh, Whatever, just what uh, what separates uh, people from being more successful? So, and I've worked with a lot of uh, a lot of people that were starting their careers and trying to influence them too and help them. Um, I always tell them, I always tell people when they're starting, and, and uh, I use, I practice that myself too. It's true. Be personable and show up. 
and put your face out there. Don't be afraid of putting your face out there. Don't be afraid of, of asking questions. Don't be afraid of, of uh, talking to people, introducing yourself, being being personable and, and creating that relationship where you're you're not different or special in any way compared to anybody else. We're all people. We're all trying to get our business done. So make sure you understand that we 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 are all in the same boat and trying to make each other better. And that's, I think, very important. So uh, it's a relationship-based business. Dairy industry is very strong relationship-based business. You have to create relationships, keep them tight, and work on them. Uh, that's what I. That's what I think separates is the ability to to talk to people and cre- try to create those relationships in a in a good way. Good, very good comments. Uh, well, Andre, I've enjoyed this. Uh, it's been uh, been. Um, educational for me uh certainly going through through this discussion so thank you uh very much for your your time and expertise sharing today um so this uh, will conclude the feed science podcast for today i'm your host ron hollenbeck uh, thank you for listening Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at the help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.